Welcome, listeners, to the second entry of the podcast Pop Art. I am Howard Kastner, your humble host. Uh, I'm an aspiring screenwriter, script consultant, blogger, author of uh, two books of short stories, and an amateur photographer. Uh, the basic premise of Pop Art is for a guest to choose a film from popular culture, and I will then choose a film from the more, let us say, arty side, uh, older film, foreign films, something like that. That might be an interesting um, thing to talk about in connection with it. So today, my guest is Richard Kirkham, who sort of chose uh, the James Bond blockbuster Goldfinger, and we'll get into the sort of choosing in a second. And then I, in turn, uh, sort of chose the uh, dark brooding adaptation of famed novelist John Le Carré's novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Uh, so uh, let's start with uh, Richard. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us something about yourself? All right. Well, uh I've been blogging for about 10 years now, and uh, my, on my primary site, Kirkham A Movie A Day, I blog on everything that I see in a theater, which means that I haven't been blogging for the last month because the theaters <laughs> are all closed. Um, that is true. Uh, and uh, I'm a you know child of the 70s, so I watched a lot of movies from the 1970s that I did on my original project, and since then, uh, I've been... Uh, participating in a lot of podcasts. I'm now the co-host of the Lambcast, the weekly uh, podcast from the Large Association of Movie Bloggers. I'm a retired communications professor uh, here in Southern California and a longtime movie fan. And uh, as Howard has already hinted at, I picked the uh, James Bond franchise because I'm a huge fan of James Bond. And uh, recently on the Lamb, we've been doing a uh, look back at all 24 films in anticipation of No Time to Die. Of course, all of our plans have gone awry this last month because everything has That's changed. True. So, yeah. But we'll straighten that out. Um, and uh, I think that's enough to get started. Um, yeah, when I say sort of chose, um, you actually said, you know, how about the something from the James Bond Enterprise? And then you let me chose, choose the film myself. So out of all the Enterprise, I decided to go with Goldfinger. So we'll be talking about Goldfinger first, and I'll just give out some quick information on it. Uh, it was produced by the fame uh, team of Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, who did a lot of the James Bond films. Uh, this is their third. It's based on the book by Ian Fleming, uh, directed by uh, Guy Hamilton, who did four Bond films. Uh, the screenplay is by Richard Nabom and Paul Dean. Um, stars Sean Connery, Honor Blackman, Gert Frobe, and uh, Shirley Eaton. And the music is by John Barry. Now, also, as it goes along, especially when, when we get to the next one, we'll also discover there's actually some kind of coincidental uh, connections between the two films, which uh, I didn't know about when we chose them. So we'll, we'll be covering those as well. Why don't we start with um, you're very big, it seems, on the Bond Enterprise. So what is it about the James Bond and the Enterprise and then Goldfinger as to why uh, you sort of uh, gravitated toward these for the podcast? Well, like I said, I'm a big Bond fan. I when, when I was a kid in the 1960s, I saw my first James Bond films. And next to outer space, the spy craze was the biggest thing in the 60s. You could not turn left or right without running 
turning into a spy franchise, a television show, something new in regard to that. And of course, James Bond was the became the most successful of all of those kinds of enterprises. And, and actually, I think uh, a lot of people say it's the one that actually is responsible. Yeah, I think it does. Okay. I think you could easily say that that's what caused there to be an explosion in those kinds of films. Although there had been spy films before, but certainly not with the amount that uh, came after the, the Bond series started. That That's really what set it off. And Goldfinger is, although there were two Bond films prior to this, and they were very successful... Goldfinger was the first blockbuster Bond. It was the one that right. broke through, became a cultural phenomena. Everybody kind of remembers it. It has iconic images that stick with you. It's an outlandish uh, idea, and it's done with a great deal of aplomb. It, it's a lot of fun, and it's over the top in its nature, which I think is one of the things that made, you know, it set a template for the Bond films for the next two decades. Right. They say that, yeah, this this set the template. When did you first see the film? I saw Goldfinger probably in 1968, 67, a couple of years after it had opened. My older right. brother took me to, they they used to re-release the films every few years, sort of like Disney did, and they would do them in a double feature package. So I think I saw a double feature pack. you know, I, there were two of them that I went to, I know, uh, I think the one I saw was Goldfinger with From Russia With Love. And then the, the other package that I also saw not too far from it was Dr. No and Thunderball. And so that's that's my memory of it. Of course, that is 50-plus years. So. <laughs> so, But I remember seeing it in the uh, 1960s. I can tell you the theater that I saw it at that's not there anymore. And I do know that it was my brother who took me, my older brother, who, you know, he had read the books. He was a big fan of uh, Ian Fleming in 1965. We were in New York City uh, on kind of a family trip. My older brother was with us, and uh, he stopped short on the street and started crying because he saw the headline that Ian Fleming had died. So that's right. I, I remember, you know, that part very vividly. He was he was quite upset. He was, you know, I was probably seven at the time, and he yeah. was uh, seven years older than me. So it was he was more aware of what was going on, and I know that he read the books because the books were around the house, and that's another way that I kind of found out about it. I would see those paperback novels with the covers and be intrigued as to what was going on there. Yeah, Ian Fleming actually, I guess, designed all his covers, at least for when the books first came out. He also died a couple of months before the opening, so he never really got to see Goldfinger either. So I have to ask you, uh, did you get the joke of Pussy Galore? <laughs> when I was a kid, no. That's what, but one of the things is, uh, as I read in my research, is they wanted to change her name to Kitty Galore for censorship purposes. And I think the writer said that, or producer, I can't remember who said that if any 10-year-old understands the phrase Pussy Galore, they're not a 10-year-old, they're a bitch. So <laughs> they did keep that in the movie. They would not use it in any advertising or anything like that. And I guess also there was an original line that they did uh, cut or change that when he wakes up and she says, and he asks, who are you? And he says, I'm Pussy Galore. Or he's supposed to say, well, I know that, but what's your name? <laughs> 
Yeah, that would be a line I think that they would definitely cut. (laughs) Um, I first thought, I guess, in college, after it came uh, out, I'm not quite the fan of James Bond than you are. I enjoy the movies very much, and I think I've probably seen now all of them, even the ones after Sean Connery left, though I probably there'll be, there might be one or two that I didn't see. The Daniel Craig uh, Casino Royale is my favorite, and that's the one that also tends to actually sort of take it more toward John Lake parade territory but these others uh you know they're always a lot of fun and one of the reasons why i chose the goldfinger out of all of them is the villain who i always liked the actor gert frobe who took it when orson wells wanted too much money and then gert frobe started asking for more and more money making more demands where they decided maybe they should have used orson wells in the first place but in many ways James Bond is often only as good as its villain, so Gert Frobe was a, was a great, great villain. And it also has one of my favorite lines from it, where Sean Connery says, um, you don't expect me to talk to you, and Goldfinger says, no, Mr. Bond, I expect, I expect you, you to die. die. And that's probably my, could be my favorite line of all the uh, James Bond films as a whole. Yeah, it's, what, it's, it's mm-hmm. a great line. To be- I'd like to talk something about uh, the screenplay. It's by Richard Maybaum, I believe the same friend his name, and Paul uh, Dean. And I don't know, have you read the original book? I have not. I've yes. just read a summary of the book. Yes, so they, the original book. They made a couple of changes from the book. And I don't know if you can talk about that, but yeah. they made one major one that's just was a brilliant, brilliant change. And another one that was sort of an updating to make it more modern. So uh, talk about the changes they made from the book. Well, the main change that they made is that originally in the book, it really is a heist that Goldfinger is planning on stealing the gold from Fort Knox. But in the uh, movie, they I mean, that was going to be a huge problem because it would take forever to move all that gold. It was too heavy. You'd have to have a train car pull up next to Fort Knox. You'd have to have hundreds of people. It would take you days to offload it. And, Which uh, is what James Bond says in the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they use that as a justification. So what they do is, in essence, they turn it into a uh, kind of an espionage plot because there is a Chinese operative who arranges to bring a dirty bomb in, and uh, they're going to irradiate the gold supply, undermining the financial systems of the West, uh, particularly the United States, for uh, somebody does a calculation about about what the uh, half-life is, you know, 54 years or something like that. Yeah, and this also then would also just increase Skirt Frobe's worth, net worth with his gold. Because now his gold suddenly becomes a lot more valuable. And I have to say, I thought that was kind of a brilliant, brilliant solution to the problem, because even the book was, I think, criticized for that. And I believe Richard Maybaum was the one who came up with that idea. Yeah, and I Uh, think, and it, it makes a little bit more sense also since you know Bond works basically for MI6, which is a intelligence agency, you know, chasing criminals is a little bit less his milieu, <laughs> and uh, right. the other seems to make a lot more sense. It, it's there's a reason for him to be involved in this whole plot. And if you want a little bit of uh, trivia, there, the uh, Chinese nationalist who, oh, who yeah. gets the dirty bomb plays Kato. Yes, that's and, Bert Kwok. Yes, yeah. it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a nice little uh, connection. Uh, what else? What else? some of the aspects of the film that you really do uh, like or, the, or what was the, there was one other change that has to do with uh, the laser 
Yeah, I don't remember uh, the well, laser. Well, laser hadn't been invented yeah. when Ian in the book. the book. That's probably what it was. So, yeah, so it's a chainsaw in the book. Yeah. And then they just needed to bring something new and, and get the laser. So what are some of the other aspects of the movie that stand out and that you really remember? Well, of course, the one thing that everybody remembers is the golden girl, Shirley Eaton, at the beginning yeah, of the movie. I, the early sequence when Bond bests Goldfinger and kind of stops his uh, his taking of the of a rich businessman uh, at a game of gin you know he he's cheating basically and it just shows what kind of personality goldfinger is but uh when she is he bond seduces the girl who's complicit in the cheating scheme and uh they have a little interlude and then bond's knocked out and she's painted gold that's an iconic image i mean you you see that image of that woman lying naked on the bed painted gold and that's something that definitely stands out and the uh theme song i remember hearing the theme song before i saw the movie i i think what happened is my father collected soundtracks and he had that so we played that at the house and i I would hear that song, and I I was trying to imagine as a kid what that movie was based on the the words in the song, and it's got almost nothing to do with uh, the uh, the plot of the of the movie. But the song is so great, and the Shirley Bassey rendition of it is terrific, and those horns at the beginning are awesome. It's so it, it really reaches out and grabs your attentions. And of course, Odd Job, the mostly silent killer in the background, the yeah. henchman. He grunts a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's about that's a, his only lines are grunting. Ah, <laughs> that's about it. But uh, and his flying uh, derby, you know, which he uses to kill Tilly Masterson, uh, Jill's sister, later on in the plot. It's just, uh, you know, it's it's outrageous. It's fascinating characters and. You know, there are iconic images that go along with it. And the music, like I said, the music is uh, another thing that draws you in quite quite a bit. Yeah, the song, uh, the the song, uh, the music was written by John Barry. The lyrics are by Anthony Newley and Leslie Briskus, who wrote musicals like Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Right. And like that. Um, yes, I think those are, in many ways, the, the highlight. Just so listeners know, you don't die if you're fully painted. That's actually a myth. Though it wasn't actually can't say it was made up for this movie. Uh, it was inspired, I guess, by something that happened to a showgirl in Las Vegas. But if you go all the way back to around, I think, 1949, there's a movie called Bedlam with Boris Karloff. Someone holds a banquet where people are living statues and they're completely painted and someone dies from that as well. So this wasn't a new myth that people die from that. And uh, the the uh, person playing Ajab, Sakata, uh, I guess was terribly, terribly burned. Oh, yeah, uh, during the end sequence in the fight sequence when he's supposed to be right. shocked with electricity apparently there there's some uh, you know, when the sparks go off when the electricity is supposed to be running through him they they did burn him painfully and he tried to he basically held to his uh role he he kept uh yeah he kept in character as they say and uh got he through it despite it the fact all. that he was burned that's that is one of the most memorable fight sequences yeah, i uh is pretty good i, I remember think. He picks up the, uh, he starts trying to throw the gold bars at him at one point, and it's like, yeah. holy crap. And they just bounce off. 
Yes, exactly. I think it's a very enjoyable movie. In many ways, it's just a really, really fun film, as most of them are. Even the bad ones, I tend to find oh, yeah. to be fun, not quite as good. I think one of the things that makes this one so good, of course, is not just uh, Gert Fro, but Sean Connery just was perfectly cast and was excellent. Yeah, and you can uh, tell he's in on the joke for the most part. Yeah. Uh, everybody is, you know, having a good time. They've figured out the right tone for this movie. They're not taking themselves too seriously, but they, they haven't turned it into a, a comic book yet. And so right. I, I think they, they walk a good tight wire on that and uh, keep the film entertained. Yes. I, I do find the uh, – uh, there's a lot of good uh, stuff in the screenplay, but I do find the uh, the plotting a bit clunky. And the most important thing that happens in the movie happens off screen. And that's when Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore, you know, changes uh, the canister. Yeah. Uh, but this shows, you know, Sean Connery is such a man, of course. Uh, this, this shows where the movie is also a bit dated. He is such an alpha male that he can turn less being straight <laughs> you know just one tryst with james bond and suddenly you're on yeah. the straight and narrow <laughs> honor blackman's a lot of fun in the film they cast her because she was in the avengers i guess she left the show to do the film and they put in a lot of judo uh just for her uh we have bernard lee as m and lois maxwell as miss Moneypenny. and um it's in many ways i think i guess a very important film i mean it predates jaws as the blockbuster because jaws changed hollywood and changed movie making uh, forever when it opened but this sort of preceded it and started it i mean there was a movie theater i guess in new york that was open 24 hours because there were just so many people who wanted to see this film it was just that big yeah and like we were saying before it's one of those things in the pop culture which is why i think it's a good choice for your show here uh that was in the zeitgeist of the times, you know, the mid-60s, and it's the spy film, and boy, was it a big hit. And they they used uh, James Bond and the idea of Goldfinger in advertising, selling products. They, you know, there were toys. This is really when movies started to exploit uh, commercial relationships a lot more. Yeah, the Aston Martin D85 was made into a toy and became the best-selling toy of that year. And it was uh, the first Bond film nominated for an Oscar. Do not win, but we can't have everything. No. <laughs> and today, people still watch Bond films. I mean, no matter how young they are, people watch Bond films. What do you think sort of it is about Bond, especially the Sean Connery Bonds, uh, that, that people just like so much? There are things about Bond that I think kind of appeal to the fantasy. I, you know, I don't mean to sound sexist, but, the, you know, the male fantasy of being powerful, intelligent, uh, smooth with the women, and living a, uh, a particular kind of lifestyle. We're going to be comparing that in just a minute to a, a, right. a different kind of spy. And believe me, the lifestyle is completely different. This one, you've got, you know, the fantasy is that you were at the uh, roulette table or that you are driving around Europe, uh, that you are sipping cocktails uh, in, at a Kentucky horse farm, that you are jetting off to see the president at the end of uh, your mission, you know, that uh, smile a particular way and Somebody falls into your arms, uh, you eat the foods that you like, and you have access to clothes that make you look fantastic, uh, and you get you to drive the coolest under, car. Yeah, you, you wear you wear tuxedos under a uh, rubber suit. Under your wetsuit, yes. But yeah. You get the tone of this movie right away, because, yes. you know, he's got the seagull snorkel that he takes off, and then he blows up the drug lord's uh, uh, factory, and then With he banana, takes his 
wetsuit off and he's oh. got his dinner jacket on under the wet. And and uh, there's also no more ambiguity in this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, w- when we talk about the fire came in from the cold, there's a lot of self-doubt and uncertainty as to what is the right thing to do, whether or not they're acting in a moral way. Um, James Bond doesn't have those kinds of qualms for the most part. I, the other film that we're going to be talking about, there's a lot of questioning as to what's the right thing to do or, you know, whose side are you on? Since we've been talking so much now about uh, this, the uh, next one, we'll go with the uh, spy who came in from the cold, uh, which I sort of chose. What I did is I sort of gave you uh, um, a choice. We could go, uh, I said we could go uh, satirical with the um, OSS 117 series with Jean Desjardins uh, from France in which they're making a third one, so we're getting a third one of those. Or we could go for the more serious, the spy who came in from the cold. And I guess I'd have to say you can't get much more serious in spy films than the spy who came in from the cold. So uh, a a little bit of information. The director is Martin Ritt. Uh, He's one of our uh, better uh, directors of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, who never made it to the top echelon of Steven Spielberg, but made a very nice series of solid films. Uh, the screenplay is by Guy Trosper and Paul, is it Dean or Dane, who uh, also contributed to the screenplay of uh, Goldfinger. It's based on the Jean Le Carré novel, the, the, the his first really, truly 100% spy novel, and the one that made him a, a big hit, so that actually he could quit and do nothing but write. It has Richard Burton, Claire Bloom, Oscar Werner, and a ton of recognizable uh, supporting character. Wonderful black and white photography by Oswald Morris. When did you first see The Spy Came In From The Cold? I think I saw it back in the 1980s. I had a friend, my uh, best friend was a big fan of spy novels, and he was reading um, the Lakari uh, spy novels. I think I, I remember reading Smiley's People and a couple of others along that line, and he recommended the book. I read the book, and then I saw the movie a couple years later on one of those services that we had. Uh, Select TV was like a, a over-the-air, instead of a cable service, it was an over-the-air subscription service, and I'm pretty sure that that's where I encountered it. So it probably would have been in 84, 85, something like that. And now you've seen it again. Yes. All right. So what did you think, if you can remember, uh, when you first saw it, and, and how did you react now upon seeing it uh, uh, more recently? Well, when I first saw it, we remember we were still in the Cold War, and uh, right. so it was a, a different time, and it, it felt a lot more relevant uh, the you still had the uh, the wall up, the Berlin Wall up, and it was still an issue between the East and the West. So it seemed like a very contemporary story, even though it was set two decades before I saw it. It still right. felt fairly contemporary. Uh, now it feels like an historical piece. It really does feel like of a different time and era. I try and remember. I remember being impressed by. Uh, Richard Burton in the film. I didn't remember how long it was. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, you know, and that might be why I didn't see it for 30 years again until just last week when we were getting ready to do this podcast because it's a long movie. Um, I guess I think I actually saw it long after it came out as well. I can't pinpoint exactly when, but I bet I waited until 
we had VHS tapes and, and things like that and probably caught up to it then. I know I didn't see it. I would have been too young to see it in the movie theater. This is definitely one of my favorite spy movies. I mean, I, I do tend toward the more serious, more realistic, uh, I guess, types of films. And I found this to be a very, actually, I guess, a, in many ways, a very, very powerful film and a very biting indictment of what it's like to be a, a spy. Uh, it's not James Bond. There are no James Bonds. James Bonds don't exist. Uh, I think my favorite line is when Richard Burton tells Claire Bloom, he has, uh, who the hell do you think spies are? More philosophers reassuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx. They're not. They're, they're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me, little men, drunkards, uh, queers, impact husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians. Uh, to brighten their rotten little lives. And he then, then Lecrae would get darker uh, after yeah. this. And, <laughs> and, is... and future novels, because everybody saw the central character, Richard Burton's character, as tragic. And that's not really what Lecrae wanted. Uh, this was, spying was a dirty, dirty, dirty business. And England had a lot to answer for, and the U.S. had a lot to answer for in the way it dealt with these things. And and this is probably the third time I've seen it, and it certainly definitely holds up for me. One of the aspects of it that I think is a little weak, and that's the character of Claire Bloom, who seems to just fall in love with this guy on a moment's notice. And I think that how long... He works at the bookstore. It's probably supposed to be a lot longer than it seems in the movie. But she just becomes so hopelessly in love with the guy. Of course, it's Richard Burton. Yeah. That doesn't hurt. Yeah. It's probably just a couple of days, also, it feels like. Yeah. Yes. And probably also what doesn't help is she's actually supposed to be 18 or 19. And Claire Bloom is obviously not 18 or 19. So an 18 or 19-year-old idealist a worshiper of Karl Marx, I might find a bit more believable to need a father figure and fall for this uh, broken down alcoholic. It is a great performance by Richard Burton. Uh, but what did, did you think of sort of the uh, of the acting? I think the standout is Oscar Werner. I thought he was great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Burton is, is terrific, you know, but he is kind of, let's face it, he's playing himself to some degree well, you know he's a sad drunkard who is uh, un, on uncertain grounds frequently he was very good at playing people who are have inward are inwardly tormented yes there you go and the film is you know it is a spy n movie it is uh, got an intricate plot there is there are a couple of really good twists in it it is not an action film at all. I'm not sure that Burton touches a gun in the movie, and uh, you know the closest you get to an action beat is a uh, chase in uh, in a car, and that's everything. And else. it's not much of a chase. It's at the no. very end. It's it's a it's a lot of talking, and there's a courtroom scene. You know, so right. it, so there's even more talking that goes on there. But what you're what you're watching it for is the plot and the characters in the plot, I think, work pretty well. I, it, the guys who are doing the recruiting for the East Germans are interesting. You mentioned familiar characters. There's Robert Hardy is one of them, and I, I knew him from TV series All Creatures Great and Small, which was a BBC show that played on PBS back in the 
70s and 80s, and I watched that. And most of, of the people watching now would know him as the Minister of Magic from the Harry Potter films, the first uh, four or five oh, films. That's <laughs> you know? a good connection. Yeah. And Sam Wanamaker, who was a character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, appears as an actor in this film. And I thought he was he was pretty good. Uh, you know, they they don't come across as malevolent and uh, evil. Uh, they are, of course, communist recruiters. They're looking for somebody to pull into their web. And the one who seems most sympathetic, despite the fact that he is kind of cold and calculating, was Oscar Werner, who, uh, as uh, Fiedler, turns out to be the target of the plot uh, yeah. in the end. Well, he's a true believer. He really does yeah. believe in the communist revolution. And in a way, not only is I strangely felt not only was it a tragedy for Richard Burton and Claire Bloom, I also felt it was a tragedy for Oscar Verne. But he was probably about the only true believer, Well, he's along with Claire Bloom in the movie, and they both don't survive. And he's on, he's on screen the smartest of the characters in the in the story. The control uh, back at uh, MI6 actually is even smarter, but he has only a couple of scenes that we see. We don't really see the machinations that he goes through in coming up with this plot, but he's the one, you know, Oscar Werner's character is the one who puts two and two together and discovers the truth, and, you know, it turns out that they're actually trying to hide the truth, and he's discovered the truth, and he's he gets punished for observing what is true. And right. they find a way to use that against him. And I, I just thought that was that was the most clever part of the uh, of the story from my point of view. That it is one of the better twists, I think. Yeah. And it does very well. It it just you're not really prepared for it. No, I don't think so. And you know, Burton turns out to be kind of a pawn, even though he thinks he is running the the scam himself, the scam is also being run on him and there's that, uh, like I said, that secondary subterfuge that's going on in this in this style of story. That's one of the reasons that it is so talkative, because I don't think you can show those things. You have to kind of explain those things. You have to set them up with character. You have to have a long exposition and plot that uh, allows us to see those things. It's not something that you can instantly get by suddenly looking at a uh, a telegram or intercepting a <laughs> coded message or or uh, having a, a character perform a certain action like you would see in most spy films, and particularly in Bond films. Uh, it's it's really a string of clues that you get led to, and so it feels naturalistic as opposed to something that's surprising. Yeah, it's Sarah Kuzak, isn't it, who plays M? Yeah, uh, the equivalent, yeah. And uh, one of the things I did notice this time around is that there is sort of a major difference, and that's how, uh, between the East and the West, and that's how they treat each other personally. When when Richard Burton goes in to see him, he says, you know, sit down, let's talk about this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whenever the, the communist people and spies uh, meet, they just go out of their way to humiliate each other. Yeah just to really put those other people down and it's just a series of humiliation i think that's the, probably before, i was gonna say i think that's probably a reflection of the way the worlds worked or at least the way we saw them you know mm -hmm. the east was repressive and there's an authoritarian tendency and uh, it's all about power and uh, control 
And even though Cyril Cusack's character is known as Control, he's not necessarily, I mean, he is controlling behind the scenes, but it's certainly in a much more graceful way than the tribunal that uh, they end up facing at the end of the movie in East Germany. Right. Speaking of Control, though, before we get, we should mention that Bernard Lee, who plays yeah. uh, the plays Control or or he plays M, M. in the yeah in the Cyber Cruz that plays control. Uh, Bernard Lee who plays M and the Goldfinger and the James Bond series has the part of Mr. Patmore who is the poor put upon long suffering yeah grocery clerk uh, and he has a very nice uh, thing here. I suppose Josh should be, should be mentioned that this is the first appearance of George Smiley in in movies. He does appear in previous books and in the movies. This is his very first appearance. He only has a small part. He becomes much, much uh, bigger, of course, in the in the three books uh, that make smiley, uh, smiley's people. Uh, Lecrae said that he had great time on the set, uh, that he was mainly, though, supposed to sort of be Richard Burton's drinking buddy and to take care of him. And he, he had a great time doing that. He didn't think they really changed much in the book. They changed the name of Claire Bloom's character, which is Liz Gold. In the book, they changed it to Nan something in the movie because Richard Burton was seeing Elizabeth Taylor at the time, and they didn't want that implication to come. Into yeah, the every movie. time he said Liz, <laughs> yeah, people would have been you know taken out of the movie, I suppose. And apparently, Elizabeth Taylor did come to the shooting, and apparently that just really was a real pain because not only did it attract tons of people. Well, you know, you know, the relationship of Liz and Dick, it was colorful, to say the very least, that also tended to get in the way. You know, as as Cray went on is, you know, he if you want to go for the realistic look at espionage, you go to Le Carre, you go to Graham Greene, you go to Somerset Mom uh, and, and authors like that. If you want to go to the fantasy, you go to. And Fleming. And then there are some that are sort of in between. You get Alfred Hitchcock movies like Notorious, which is a pretty dirty look, yeah. espionage. But you also have North by Northwest, which is a much more fun fantasy. More fun, but I tell you what, the character, gosh, I, I'm blanking on the actor's name. He played James Mr. Mason. Waverly on, uh, in uh, Man from Uncle. But yeah, he basically says, well, we don't really care about you. He's pretty indifferent. I mean, He's pretty brutal in uh, the way he treats his agent, and uh, and he's pretty frank in talking to Cary Grant's character about the whole thing. You know, and you can see how he's cold and calculating. And says, you know, they've got to be the same way. They've got to be just as uh, brutal and efficient as the opposition. And I think you get a yeah. sense of that in both that film and, but especially in uh, the one we're talking about here. Uh, this vacuum in the cold, as as Control says. You know, we're the good guys, but just because we're the good guys, we have to be just as nasty in the way we do things as the bad guys. That's the only way you can win. So is there anything uh, left that you might want to say about either one of the films, the James Bond films or, or uh, in the heat of the night? You mean the spy who came in from the cold? I know. You skipped a, a groove there. They're That's both, okay. They're both, yeah, no. Well, it's interesting that they came out pretty much simultaneously, you know, and they're very different ways of looking at it. Uh, the, uh, the Bond film is half as long as The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. The 
music styles are so different also and and the black and white is there's another way that you can kind of contrast the two i think black and white works well for the kind of grim story that's being told in the spy who came in from the cold and uh i can't imagine a bond film in black and white no yeah for me as much as i like the bond films they are a bit too fantasy uh for me i i daniel craig's uh casino royale is my favorite of all of them. Um, I should mention that the original Casino Royale is one of the, a terrible, terrible film. Oh gosh. And I can't help. It's awful. And I can't, I can't help but watch it every time it's on. Every time it's on, I just have to watch it. I just can't. So, uh, so, so as we get to a conclusion, um, is there some other film or two that you might want to recommend sort of like the James Bond series that you might recommend for people to watch, but not James Bond? Oh, well, you know, I, I think uh, everybody knows that uh, the Bourne series was kind of the inspiration for rebooting James Bond with the Daniel Craig. Uh, they were trying to update Bond and make it more action oriented with a little bit more brutal combat and hand to hand sort of thing. Uh, and I, I like that series well enough, but it's not my cup of tea. I I kind of enjoy the fantasy part a little bit more, so I would always recommend True Lies, which is a, a nice yeah. combination of silliness and just enough real threat kind of thing. You know, the idea of the terrorists, uh, that's a, a real sort of thing, but the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to pass himself off as a spy, it was, that was that was a little <laughs> silly, but that's that's a lot of fun. And I have to admit that I am ashamed to say, and my all my friends will just probably shun me. I have never seen True Lies, and I really need to. It's it's very entertaining. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis must yeah, be great, and, and she's great. Uh, you know, I love Jamie Lee Curtis. She's she's terrific in that movie. So that would be my recommendation on the Bond level. Are you going to ask me about the uh, no, I do the that. Old level because I've got one for that too. Oh well, if you do, let's have it. Yes. Well, obviously, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is right. the one that you want to go to there, the Gary Oldman version. Uh, I, I saw the TV version back in the late 70s or early 80s, like I was mentioning before, and it was a mini-series. I think it went on for yeah. six or seven episodes. Uh, but the movie... Uh, I think it's three movies, but I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. I, I just remember that there were a series of them that you had to watch. Right. Uh, the movie version with Gary Oldman, tries to do all of that in two and a half hours, and it's a very complex story. And it if is. You're, if you're not paying attention, you're not going to know what the heck is going on. I think that's the one fault I have with that film. Gary Oldman is brilliant, and it's great, and has a great cast. But it does try to do too much in too short a period of time, and it is very hard to. Yeah. Um, for me, I will recommend uh, three films. One is another Le Carre film. Uh, uh, based on one of his novels. <clears throat> it's A Most Wanted Man. It's one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's last performances, and he's great in it. It has a great supporting cast. It's extremely well-written and well-done. I don't think it got the attention it should have had when it was released. Another uh, one that is also a little fun but also most serious is The Ipcris File with Michael Caine that came out uh, uh, after uh, the James Bond movies, and that's a much more serious film about someone who's a Michael Caine is a Harry Palmer who is assigned given an assignment and he begins to suspect he's given it because he's expendable. And then finally the quiet American based on the Graham Greene novel and not the bastardization original with, with Michael Redgrave 
and Audie Murphy, which changes the story uh, in, in an inexcusable way. But the remake with Michael Caine giving one of his uh, finest performances as a reporter in Vietnam uh, before the war really started, he begins to suspect that an American doctor is actually an American spy. So I would uh, recommend those as um, as uh, companion pieces. So next, I will say, first of all, say thank you for being our guest, for being my guest on the second of these episodes. In conclusion, uh, could you give us uh, or let us know what's coming up, uh, what you're going to be doing next or what we should be uh, looking up? Like I said, the... Uh... The Lamb cast has been kind of in a, what would you would you call it, some kind of uh, cascading, <laughs> rolling uh, changes, because everything on our schedule had to change, because right. all of the films being released have been a little bit different. So we're trying to find interesting things to talk about that are maybe a little bit more generic, uh, look back a little bit more, um, uh, and I think we've been successful at that, so there's... There's a, a lot of those kinds of things. On my site, I'll probably, if this keeps going on for uh, any while, I'll probably dip back into doing a film series. I've, I've done some, uh, you know, like film festivals in the past where I would just uh, watch five or six films from one of my favorite actors and do a post on that. I did one on uh, Robert Shaw. And I did one for Charles Bronson. So I, I might find uh, an actor or a performer or a, a director that I like and maybe uh, do a series of films in the next month or so. I don't have anything definite right now because everything's sort of been up in the air. And I hope everybody's staying safe, by the way. Right. Um, as for me, as some of these I've mentioned uh, in the last uh, podcast, but uh, my blog can be found in, on WordPress. Press. It's called Rantings and Ravings. Uh, my most recent entry was an uh, was a blog posting on writers, both film philosophical writers and uh, fiction writers who have influenced my uh, writing. I have a screenplay consultation uh, business, so you can find more of that on my blog as well as on Facebook. I have a Facebook uh, Howard Kastner script consultation page. Uh, I've written a screenwriting book called Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, two books of short stories, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. And I've also published three plays. All of those can be found on Amazon, simply uh, Google my name. Uh, yes, when it comes to the Lambcast, I was supposed to be on The Wonder Woman, uh, Lambcast, but as of now, I have no idea. <laughs> That's going to roll back at least until August. Yes. And then uh, speaking of the Lambcast and Jay Cluett, right now he's supposed to be my guest on the next uh, podcast of Pop Art. He chose Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and I chose uh, Igmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. So <laughs> those are two really contrasting uh, movies there. That's, that's going to be an interesting show. I look forward to listening to it. So uh, once again, uh, thank you uh, very much, Richard, for it's, being on my show. It's been my pleasure, and Howard. It's great. Hopefully uh, we'll have you again sometime in the future. Looking forward to it. Great. Thank you.